Let me first of all welcome you if you're here for the first time or first of a few times. Um, I want to kind of give you a little bit of perspective about what we're doing this morning. We don't perform. Um, we really don't try and um, put on a show. We just, uh, this is family sitting around a table and uh, sitting around a table of the Word this morning. So hopefully you'll see both in song and in preaching and uh, the way we engage the message You'll see that we are dining together as a family, and we're glad you've joined us this morning uh, at the table. I want to introduce Brent and Andrew Money, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to Brent here in a second. His father and son in the baptism pool. We have a really tough time knowing what Brent thinks about things, so I'm hoping that in the next couple minutes, <laughs> that in the next couple minutes, that maybe we can hear a word from Brent about uh, his heart for his son and the Lord. Let's turn it over. Andrew started talking with us about a year or so ago uh, about um, becoming a Christian and, and loving Jesus, and, and we wanted to be really sure that he understood what he was doing and he wasn't just trying to please mom and dad or um, give Sunday school intellectual answers, but that he really um, he really had a heart, heart change and a heart desire. And so um, we've been talking with him a lot over the last few months about what this means, um, and uh, and have come to the point that that uh, we just we just couldn't keep him out of here any longer. He wanted to know why he why he uh, couldn't be baptized. So, um, Andrew, what is your only hope for salvation? Jesus. Is there are, are you trusting in him as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Andrew, as my son and my brother. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, um, for this picture um, today of, of you, what you did on the cross, dying for our sins. Um, and that uh, by passing through this water, uh, you, you show that you have delivered us. I thank you for the commitment that Andrew has made today in front of uh, these witnesses and in front of you, um, that he trusts you alone as his Lord and Savior, and uh, that there's no other way that we can uh, be saved apart from you. I pray for the service this morning as we talk about the Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit will work uh, in our hearts and lives. and. Uh, and through Pastor Ben to uh, to teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to John chapter 16. I'm going to pray. Pray with me. <clears throat> Lord, in these next couple minutes, first of all, before we lift up our specific context in this specific sanctuary and these hearts and these and this specific message, I want to lift up two different pastors. Uh, one pastor I want to lift up is Eddie Long. Lord, I know that you know all things and you know um, that either Eddie has fallen into sin or he is being wrongly accused. You know uh, specifically what's going on there. And Lord, I pray that whatever is the truth, that that will come to light and that you'll be glorified in the way that the people of God walk through that in the aftermath. Lord, I pray for Eddie and his marriage. Lord, I pray for his wife that uh, she is... Uh, worshiping right now, uh, whatever she may be experiencing, that more than anything that she is enjoying you and clinging to you. 
Lord, we pray that the people of God will be salty, bright, and aromatic through this. And that through this event, whether it be sin or um, slander, that you'll be glorified. We trust you. We know that you weren't snoozing when these allegations came out or the sin actually happened. And pray that, that you'll be glorified through how it unfolds. Lord, we also want to pray for Dr. Jeffries and um, First Baptist Church Dallas. Lord, I'm thankful for the words that he shared regarding the Islam Muslim faith. And I'm thankful that he um, is true and bold and yet loving and welcoming and hopeful at the same time. Lord, I'm thankful that um, he is being hated by the world right now for being salty, bright, and aromatic. I pray that his church walks in this lovingly and faithfully and that they as a people and that we alongside them in whatever way that we can um, give an account for the hope with them with gentleness and respect. Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified through what unfolds in the next few weeks or months regarding his statements uh, on Muslims. Lord, in these next few minutes for our context, I pray for worshipers. I pray that you will guard us from being uh, practical, from worshiping the God of utility, but in these next few minutes that we can enjoy you as worshipers and uh, that you'll be uh, blessed, that we'll be a sweet aroma. Lord, I pray for an attentiveness that I can't create, that I can't keep, that I can't um, harness, but that the Holy Spirit can grip and arrest. And I pray for that in these next few minutes as we enjoy you. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in John chapter 16, and we're actually biting off a big chunk of John today. That's crazy for us to consider that. But in one sermon, we will move from um, John chapter 16, verse 4, all the way down to verse 15. It is possible for us to do that, I guess. Uh, I want to share a passage of Scripture before we go there, and so I want to sort of prepare your hearts for worship. We have kind of a call to worship. This will be a scriptural call to worship. Um, John chapter 3, don't turn there, just listen, verse 8. Just listen. It says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I remember preaching that passage a while back and remember the difficulty that I had with a Holy Spirit that's like the wind. The wind is hard to explain. It's hard to capture. It's hard to represent. It's hard to diagram. I mean, who can draw the wind? You can't draw it. You can draw the effects of it. Who can see the wind? You can't see it, but you can see the effects of it. I like stuff that you can see and contain and explain. That's why preaching on the Holy Spirit is sort of difficult. A good measure of how complicated the sermon is or how difficult it will be to preach is how much I eat. And Friday and Saturday, I ate a lot of grub. And I eat a lot of stuff I don't normally eat. So just know that this is a challenging sermon. <laughs> Ask Christy. I've been all tied up over it. But I know that the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, um, it's about the Holy Spirit. And I know that the Holy Spirit can work through it. And I know that He can work in you in attentiveness that... Um, that you don't have. 
The things that we're going to engage in the next few minutes from these passages regarding the Holy Spirit made crucifixion eve. They made it a moment, an hour, where Christ is sitting with his disciples where he's going to be nailed to a cross hours later. And he's giving them some essential truths. And I'll just prepare you right now. They're not practical. It's really not about the disciples and it's really not about you. And that's another reason it's difficult to preach because, man, I enjoy preaching on us. It's hard to preach and just expose God. And that's what we're going to do in these next few minutes because it's something that the disciples needed. I think about the time where Christ sat with the Samaritan woman at the well and she wanted to talk utility. Where do we worship, here or there? And he wants to talk about worship, specifically worship. My father's not looking for utilitarians. He's not looking for practicers. He's looking for practitioners. He's looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. So knowing that that's what God is looking for and knowing that Christ spoke with these guys on the eve before his crucifixion about something that's really impractical but has to do with the nature and character of God, specifically the Holy Spirit, I'm encouraged that it's worth us spending a morning even if it's difficult and hard. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I'm encouraged by that. Because I know if we have people that are seeking to know God better, that we'll walk away knowing God better and enjoying Him more. This message isn't about you, but it's for you. If you're seeking the Lord and want to know Him and His ways. Let me give you a map of where we're going. I want you to, to have kind of a sense of our route and our finish line. That helps stay on track. We're going to look at this passage of Scripture in four chunks. Look at it as sort of a meal. The first chunk is going to be sort of an appetizer. I'm going to read a chunk, and we're going to unpack a little bit. The second and third chunks, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to read, and I'm going to unpack. Read and unpack, but look at that as the main course. And then look at the last chunk and of reading and unpacking as a dessert. Four chunks with reading and unpacking as we go all the way through verse 15. Starting in verse 4, the second part of verse 4. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is the key phrase. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, these guys are dealing with sorrow. You have to imagine the sorrow that they felt. They've left work trucks. Their version of work trucks would be fishing boats or tax collecting booths. To follow Christ, they've left family, friends, everything to follow Christ. They've passed their lot with him. They followed him for three years, and he's saying, I'm going away, and you can't go with me. And they're dealing with severe sorrow at this point. But that sorrow is met with good news of advantage. It's a good thing that I go away because you're going to be advantaged in my leaving. He's essentially saying to these disciples who'd followed him for three years, You'll be better off when I'm gone. That's a hard thing to really grasp. 
You'll be better off when I'm gone. We may be able 2,000 years this side of it to look at it and say, oh, I can get it. But if you left everything to follow him and heard those words, you'd be like, oh, no, there's no way. There's no way because there's hard to be any better than being with you. You'll be better off when I'm gone. This is not really the direction of the message, but it's just so good that I'm going to share it anyway. This phrase, it is to your advantage, is used in one other place in the book of John. I'm going to read it to you. I don't want you to turn there. I want you to stay focused on where we are. But I want to read it to you for the sake of uh, a sweet truth that I can share with you. Caiaphas was the high priest. And Caiaphas is having a conversation with the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, you know nothing at all. They're discussing whether Jesus is legit or not. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you. That's the same Greek phrase as used over here in John chapter 16. It is to your advantage. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What Caiaphas is saying is this guy dying is better for you. And Christ is saying me dying is better for you. In one event, this is a picture of something called concurrence. Where what Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. You heard that phrase before? Joseph? What y'all meant for evil, God meant for good. In the same event, with the same wood, the same nails, the same blood, the same sweat, the same persecution, what you guys think is going to be advantageous to you, scribes, Pharisees, Caiaphas, is actually going to be God's glory. And it's going to be most advantageous for God's people. It is to our advantage, in fact, that he go away. So why is this good news? Back to our passage. Back to our sermon. Why is this good news? Why is it good news that Christ goes away? How could these guys possibly have advantage? First of all, in regards to the reach of the gospel. And incarnate ministry, if you think about physical presence, that's what incarnation means, is limited to who's walking with that person incarnate. Christ leaving and the Holy Spirit coming means that the reach of the gospel is going to be much more significant. You think about the reach of Christ's ministry, it reached 11 guys, 12, technically one of them went bad. But it reached 11, it reached 70, it reached hundreds maybe. And now through the work of the Holy Spirit, it's extended to thousands upon thousands. You also think about Christ in the flesh, his ministry is limited to 33 years or so. And maybe whatever hillside he's parked on, or whatever road he's walking down, or whatever boat he happens to physically be in. When he departs and the Holy Spirit comes, it's extended not just to 33 years of life, but to thousands of years. And to every hillside and to every boat, that's good news. That the impact or the reach of the gospel is significantly impacted by the Holy Spirit coming. He also impacts the effect of the gospel. It's not just the reach of the gospel, but the effect of the gospel. The Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost is such a profound effect on the disciples that the same dudes who are going to be chickens only hours after he shares this word with them will seven weeks later be the bold preachers of Pentecost. The same dudes that run like a bunch of scared chickens from maidens. Oh, I don't know Jesus. I'm not with him. Seven weeks later, will be the bold preachers of Pentecost, not somewhere else, in the very same city, 
If somebody wants proof of the resurrection, you see proof of the resurrection in how these men were transformed in the course of seven weeks. You want proof of the Holy Spirit. Look at these men and how the Holy Spirit changed them from chickens to bold preachers. The last thing from this passage that I want you to see is in the very last phrase. But if I go, I will send him to you. I want you to see that the Son sends the Holy Spirit. He tells us in verse 5 that he's sent by the Father. But now I'm going to him who sent me. The Son is leaving. He's going to the Father who sent him. And he's saying, when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. I want you to see that. I want you to see that the Father sends the Son, and the Son sends the Holy Spirit. And while Father, Son, and Spirit are all fully God, they're not one-third God. They're all fully God, and they are equal in person and nature and divinity and greatness. They serve a functional hierarchy where the Father sends the Son and the Son sends the Holy Spirit. If you want to know, people get so torqued over um, the different roles of husband and wife in the home or the different roles of elder in a church. I can't follow those people or I can't follow that man. You want to understand functional hierarchy and equality, you can see it right here. Where you see Father sending Son and Son sending Holy Spirit and them serving in different capacities, a functional hierarchy, yet in reality they are one of one essence, one being fully God equal. You want to understand the role of husband and wife in the home, you see it in the Trinity. Now on to verse 8. Second chunk. Moving on to the main course. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now up to this point, Jesus has introduced the the disciples to the Holy Spirit. He's introduced them really in two capacities so far. As sort of the helper, comforter, who's going to help you with your, your pain and your sorrow. But also as the advocate who's going to mediate for you. You can envision this high court of heaven where the Holy Spirit serves as a mediator. I'm going to mediate for y'all. And I'm going to be your defender in some ways. Well, here the Holy Spirit shifts gears to becoming prosecutor. It's a new role for the Holy Spirit in the book of John. It's not one that we see a lot of in our Bibles. But in this case, he's serving as prosecutor. He is in a convicting role that seems to be corporate for the world an individual for the potential believer. First of all, he convicts the world concerning sin. He convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. There are a couple of pictures of that in John chapter 15. We saw them recently. Look over right across the page, John chapter 15, verse 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now, you know that doesn't mean every sin and any sin. We're not talking about their perfection. And if Jesus showed up, that up, all bets are off. Now you're sinners. He's speaking specifically of one sin that he's going to define. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And their sin is explained in verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, here's the sin. 
But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The sin that he's speaking of here is the sin of unbelief. And the Holy Spirit exposes this sin for what it is. He shows the world to be guilty of unbelief in a corporate sense. And despite miracles, despite incarnate presence, incarnate preaching, touching, being there in the flesh and doing mighty works, they still do not believe. The Holy Spirit convicts the world that you are a bunch of unbelievers. The world has rejected its creator. The Holy Spirit serves that role of convicting the world of unbelief. And he also works in the hearts of unbelievers to see and repent from their sin of unbelief. This world would never know that we were sinners apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. If you know you're a sinner, that's because the Holy Spirit showed it to you. If you know that you were once an unbeliever and that you once rejected your your creator, that's the Holy Spirit that revealed that to you. If you have someone that you have a burden for that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't know or care or even think that they're a sinner, the Holy Spirit is the one that will show it to them if it's shown to them at all. It won't be you. It won't be your method. It won't be your scheme. God may use you, but ultimately the agent is the Holy Spirit that brings people place to a place of seeing their sin and being convicted concerning their sin. This is what he did in the hearts of James and Jude. You remember the brothers of Jesus that once mocked him, once scorned him. Go on up to the festival, Jesus. Go up there and show off. And later, through the work of the Holy Spirit, these guys become worshipers. James becomes the bishop of Jerusalem. And both men go on to write two New Testament books and refer to their Jesus, not as their bro, but as their Christ and Lord. Former haters, through the work of the Holy Spirit, are made worshipers and pastors and writers. He convicts the world concerning sin. Secondly, he convicts the world concerning righteousness. If you've really kind of connected to this, if you've really been paying attention, if you're really engaging this passage, you're seeing, okay, the world's convicted concerning sin, concerning judgment. That makes sense. But why would the world be convicted concerning righteousness? How can you convict someone for righteousness? If anything, righteousness is going to mean that you're not convicted. What he's speaking of here is sort of a sarcastic handling of righteousness. He's dealing with the world's false righteousness or the world's effort at righteousness. This is a very difficult passage in the Greek, a very difficult passage studying. I spent most of my week studying this specific passage. And here's where I've landed. John is the same guy that often quotes Isaiah. John loves Isaiah. It's all through the book of John. And Isaiah says this about our righteousness. He says, man's righteousness or the righteousness of the world is like a menstrual cloth. That's graphic. Because that's how poor and sad our efforts at righteousness are. Our more contemporary translations say they're filthy rags. The best you have to offer is filthy rags. But that's what it means. And John often quotes this man Isaiah that says the world's righteousness is a mockery. Think about some of, the man's, some of man's efforts at righteousness. I think about Adam and Eve's efforts to cover their sin and shame with fig leaves. Anybody ever tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves? They might work today. But come tomorrow or the next day, you're out of luck, bro. It's pitiful. Man's efforts at righteousness are pretty ridiculous. I think it was 2003, something like that. The 
The author of the book of virtue, a man named William Bennett, was found to have a gambling problem. Isn't that ironic? The world's version of virtue, the embodiment of virtue, a man that's going to write a book, the book of virtue. It's got to be on every library shelf in every home. If you have any virtue at all, the author of it's found to have a gambling problem. It doesn't make us laugh at William. It just makes us laugh at man's efforts for virtue, man's efforts at righteousness. And that's what he's speaking of here. Concerning righteousness, the Holy Spirit convicts the world that it has no righteousness apart from Christ. If you've connected to that, if you realize that the best you have to offer is filthy rags, guess who showed that to you? His name is the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world concerning righteousness. And I use quotation marks around that. And in the same breath, he shows that world who connects to, I have no righteousness. The best I have to offer is filthy rags, where we see Christ as not the, just a picture of righteousness, but the embodiment of righteousness. We see Christ as righteousness defined. The Holy Spirit is the one that shows us that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that leads us to exult in his righteousness while we may mourn our lack. Those two things go together. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Christ's reference to going to the Father in this passage concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. Includes the work that went along with that. Everything that led up to him going ascending to the Father's right hand as the victor. That would include incarnation, sinlessness, miracles, sermons, teaching, preaching, perfection, and bearing a cross. And it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to be convinced of the reality of this birth, life, death, and resurrection. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That should be an encouragement to you as parents. Maybe it's not. Maybe as parents, you would like to know that you can get your kids saved. That maybe through your efforts, your children can be saved. For me, it's helpful to know that it's not up to me. Because my, I'm feeble. I'm feeble. I'm looking at, at, at sowing that I've made in the life of our kids. And there's been some sowing there. But there's also been some sowing to worldliness. The kids have seen anger. The kids have seen frustration. They've seen fear. They've seen all the things in the world that the world has to offer. And yes, they've seen some snapshots of faith. And they've heard some truths it can change their lives, but it's helpful for me as a daddy to know that it's the Holy Spirit that gives that boy life or that girl life. He's the one that convicts them concerning sin. That liberates me. One commentator said, when you think of it, he says, it's an amazing thing that men should put their trust for all eternity in a crucified Jewish criminal. It is an amazing thing if you think about it. What convinces men that this crucified Jew is the Son of God, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. It's advantageous that the Son goes away because that's what we get in his place. Third, he convicts the world concerning judgment. He says, convicting, or concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This refers to the awesome defeat of Satan on the cross. I've preached on this passage before, and I love it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Don't turn there. Just listen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, a.k.a. he chumped them by triumphing over them 
in him. He made chumps of Satan and the principalities and authorities in the cross. He, Satan, ironically, not Christ, was made a public spectacle through the cross. If you think about it, man, there's no more public spectacle than crucifixion. Yet, ironically, it's another picture of concurrence. Satan has made a public spectacle through the cross. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the world seals the fate of the ruler of this world. All three of these works are Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit are understood relative Christ. Sin is defined relative Christ as in disbelief of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit reveals. He convicts the world concerning that sin. He convicts the world concerning righteousness that it's not your own, but is defined and exemplified in Christ. And concerning judgment, he convicts the world of, of Satan, or he convicts Satan through the finished work of Christ and through all that went along with that finished work. Turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you how this shows up. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> If you have a handle on your Bible, you know that this is where the Holy Spirit showed up. This is seven weeks after the chickens ran on Passover. Pentecost is where Peter preached the message, where tongues of fire show up. In verse 32, it says, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. In other words, he's gone away at this point. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's seated as the victor. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now watch what happens to the people who are hearing this message. Thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire in many different tongues have heard this message. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, Hear conviction and the rest of the apostles. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Man, that is a beautiful picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up on the birthday of the church and Peter, the former chicken of Passover, now the preacher of Pentecost, preaches. The people experience deep conviction and want to repent and they own their guilt and beg for an opportunity to repent and follow Christ. They're convicted about their sin, the righteousness of Christ, and the judgment on Satan is obvious as thousands believe and the church is born. And for the rest of the book of Acts, it is Holy Spirit saturated. One passage after another. 
Acts 4, 8. Here's just a sampling. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. The rest of the book goes one account after another where the Holy Spirit has this key role as the agent and the mover, not only giving people boldness in exposition, but breaking the hearts of the hearers. You see conviction concerning sin. You see conviction concerning righteousness. And you see conviction concerning judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, going back to our passage in John 15. We move on to the second part of the main course. That was the most difficult part. I'm sweating. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. The Spirit guides into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit guides into all truth. He speaks what He's already heard. In John chapter 12, Christ tells us that he speaks what he's heard from the Father. So I established early on, I hope you got this, that the Father sends the Son and the Son sends the Holy Spirit. And the Father gives the Son a message and the message is proclaimed through Christ. And when Christ goes on to the Father's right hand, he gives that same message. The very same message that originated with the Father to the Holy Spirit. Now that may not seem like it's anything special, but I want you to know that there's integrity and continuity in the message that we receive from the Holy Spirit. It's not a different message that the Father gave to the Son. It's not a different message that the Son gave. There's integrity and continuity. It's not disconnected, but has unity as the same message. As I've preached for the last few years and studied over the years the Gospels, something in me has sort of longed to be in those Gospel stories. Not me, like, hey, here's Ben, you know, James and John and Ben are hanging out. But I want to climb into them and experience Christ in the flesh. Over the years, there have been times where I've coveted being these men. There are times I've thought about how cool it would have been to drink from the cup that he passed and to eat the bread that he broke, to grieve and be sorrowful with the other disciples. I thought about how cool it would be in the flesh to walk along a road with Jesus and to just look where he looked. To think about what mattered to him. To pass out loaves and fishes. To be in a boat when he quiets the sea with his word. That would be awesome. But probably the most awesome thing about being in that context would be to sit on a hillside and to hear the word preached. To walk along a road as he's teaching as he goes. To hear the teachings of Christ firsthand as that word is given life. As it's spoken. How awesome it would have been to be there. But here's the good news about the the Holy Spirit coming. About Christ going to the Father's right hand. Is the sweet good news of Christ sending his Holy Spirit. 
is that he speaks what he's heard, it means that the message continues. It means that the message continues. It isn't faded or dim. It has the same fidelity as if we sat on that hillside with a chunk of bread in one hand and a fish in the other hand. Does that blow your mind that we can gather weekly and that through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, that the message has the same fidelity as if Christ were here today? And that's awesome because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He continues the message. When we gather each week and hear these words, we may as well have a loaf in one hand and a chunk of fish in the other because we're there with Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. You also need to know that this work of the Holy Spirit and this continuity goes both ways. For the Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to something that the Father or the Son wouldn't lead you to. Probably one of the most common things that I deal with is, oddly enough, is women wanting to leave their husbands. I mean, I'm just talking real practical. This, this happens. In the life of this church, seven years, I would say seven or eight times maybe, five or six. You'd think it'd be the other way around. But men coming to faith in Christ and beginning to worship, I guess wives wanted the bad boy, like the bad boy. Dreamt about him coming to faith, and when he does come to faith, got no use for him. And let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit will never leave you, lead you leave your wife or your husband because Jesus didn't and the father hates divorce so don't claim the Holy Spirit's leading you to do something that the father or Jesus wouldn't because he's got the same message this would have to do with divorce you know it really has to do with church hopping too I think there's a weird context that we're in where if someone hacks you off man you go right down the street 98 Christian churches in Greenville, and it's easy to hop. I, really, we don't let people do it, at least come in hopping. <laughs> if you've got springs on your feet, we're like, hey, man, turn back around. We've learned our lesson. If you've got a long history of going from one church to the next about every three or four years, what that says is that you, you can't be pleased. And the Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to move on to the next church without explanation, without worship, not driven by worship or wonder, not driven in pursuit of God's word. It's just, ah, these guys made me mad. Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to do that because the father or son wouldn't. Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to do something that the father or son wouldn't do. Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to work voluntary overtime at the expense of your church because the father or son wouldn't. Holy Spirit won't lead you to hoard and to gather full barns because the Father or Son wouldn't either. If you want to know if it's a Holy Spirit's message or not, you look in this word and you filter it through this word because the Holy Spirit's not going to have a message contrary to this word. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He continues the message. And he declares to you the things that are to come. That's what Jesus promised there. He's going to declare to you the things that are to come. In other words, he will show you the way. There are events that these people haven't experienced yet. These men haven't experienced a lot of the things that they're about to, like Pentecost, like thousands of people coming to Christ. The apostles haven't preached in foreign tongues yet. Peter and John haven't healed a lame beggar yet or been dragged before a council and beaten yet. 
John hasn't written the gospel of John or first or second, third John or Revelation. Peter hasn't written first or second Peter yet. They haven't chosen deacon yet. They haven't mourned over the loss of Stephen yet. Peter hasn't met Cornelius yet or had a vision of a great sheet with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds coming down. So much is yet to come for these men. And Jesus is promising them, it's better for you to go away if I go away because the Holy Spirit is going to come and he will show you the way and he will guide you into all truth. All these things these men will experience, the Holy Spirit will guide them through. That's got to encourage you that whatever tomorrow holds for you, that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth through that. That's good news. He will show you the way to go in each novel and surprise encounter. And they're always a surprise. He does this for us. The last two verses in our passage, verse 14 and 15. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The last thing that we're engaging this morning regarding the Holy Spirit is that he glorifies Christ by declaring what is Christ's and the Father's and sharing it with you. This is a really key diagnostic truth for me. Over the years, I've had occasion to come in contact with ministries or worshipers or situations that were really, really Holy Spirit focused. And you can turn on television, on TBN and, and places like that where the Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit that. Man, the Holy Spirit just seems to be front and center. This is a key diagnostic instrument to understand that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. That's a big deal. That'll help you understand and discern, is this thing off track or not? Am I off track or not? If I'm all about the Holy Spirit, sign gifts, and all these things that the Holy Spirit does, the key role of the Holy Spirit is to point to Christ. It's a sweet diagnostic truth. If a ministry makes much of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the focus, then it's misdirected, and it's even worth wondering, potentially, if it's even the Holy Spirit that's driving it. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't make much of himself. He makes much of Christ. Key diagnostic tool. Now, the passage I shared in the beginning, John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. This message explains the wind a little bit. It captures some things that are characteristic to something that's hard to capture and characterize. That's why it's hard. It sort of explains the wind. It should show us his work and show us that it's not rigid and it's not predictable. It's not a recipe. We don't own the Holy Spirit and direct him around and do what He's not our bellboy that does whatever we want. He blows like the wind. And ultimately what it should do is teach us to pray. So in response to what we've engaged this morning regarding the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Lord, in response to some of the things that we've learned about the Holy Spirit today, considering that the Son sent Him, considering that it's our advantage 
that we have the Holy Spirit even over the physical presence of Christ. Considering the role of the Holy Spirit convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Considering that it's the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth and shows us the way. And considering it's the Holy Spirit that glorifies Christ. Lord, I pray these things. Lord, I pray that you will blow this way. I pray that you will blow this way and convict this little piece of the world called Greenville. I pray that you will convict Astana. I pray that you will convict Amman, even Teopisca. Lord, I pray that you will convict those little chunks of the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, I pray through the Spirit that you will take the message to Greenville, Astana, Amman, your message that was the same message that was the Son's, that you will take it in Spirit-filled messengers that make it as if Christ physically walked those streets and preached on those hillsides. I pray for that physically regarding L3, regarding the workplace, regarding Rubbermaid, regarding 10510 Woodland Drive. Lord, I pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit that it will be as if Christ lives in that home. Lord, I'm thankful that you captured the wind some this morning and explained some things. Lord, I pray we can do the hard work of walking in what we've heard and discussing and chewing on what we've heard. As families, as small groups, as men who work together and go to lunch together, As wives who talk to each other on Facebook, I pray that these sort of things will find purchase. We'll consider the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll be thankful. And that we'll worship as a result. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. take of the Lord's Supper, and it's something that we do here every week, and our hope is that every believer, everyone who follows Christ, would partake of the Lord's Supper, take it in remembrance, and do it as an act of wholehearted worship. We want you to be well-informed and not misinformed. We want you to know what we're doing with the, Holy, uh, with the Lord's Supper, and the Holy Spirit obviously plays a role in that. Turn to Romans 10 for just a moment. And kids, you have done wonderful this morning. Y'all are hanging in there. Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. Paul is making a comment about his Israelite brethren. And his heart is really broken for them because they're doing certain things, but they're not doing them the right way. And he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his Israelite brethren, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for everyone, uh, end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What he's stating there is that they're really zealous for the Lord, but it's, it's misinformed and it's uninformed. 
And so they're doing things like this all the time, but they're doing them the wrong way. And what I think we can know this morning is that the Holy Spirit guides us into a proper knowledge of things and a proper understanding, keeps us from foolishness. And so one marker that we have this morning is that for the Israelites that Paul's talking about in Romans 10, their zeal for God was more about them. So if your zeal for the Lord is more about you, then it's likely that that zeal is misinformed or uninformed. But if your zeal for God is about him and his glory, and it doesn't terminate on you, then that is worship. So we do this in remembrance as an act of worship. In Corinthians, the letter to the church in Corinth, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. He's taking this bread and he's saying, what you've been doing for a long time since you uh, left Egypt, it's always been about me. And Jesus is making the statement that it's time it's about me again. And it should have never not been about me. And so this is not the thing that we do before the last songs, before we take the offering and before we go to lunch. This is in remembrance. It's about our Lord. And we understand it by work of the Holy Spirit as it's been clearly explained this morning. I hope we're convicted about that by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus takes the bread in his hand. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. By the work of the Holy Spirit, in remembrance of Christ Jesus, take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, we count it a privilege to gather. We count it a privilege to worship. Lord, you tell us that um, lukewarmness in this uh, is not pleasing to you. And so I pray that we would be wholehearted in these things, and I'm thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit to give us any understanding, any conviction, any guidance, any help. Lord, we are a very, very blessed people. I pray that as we continue in worship, in song, in giving, I pray that we would be wholehearted and we would know that we are able to do so because of a work that's done outside of us by your hands, by the work of your Spirit. We love you very much. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a vegetable morning. Um, I like main courses. I like bread. I don't like vegetables very much, but I need them. <laughs> you know, really, this is a vegetable morning. It's a vegetable sermon. Uh, it's not a fun one to preach, but it's not about fun. Man, if I just preach what was fun, yeah, I could do that every week. And I'm not condemning. I want to be very careful. I just want to encourage you. You know, some of y'all are visiting, and that's cool. You might be visiting, uh, looking for another church, or you may be here with the money crew or whoever. Whether you're here as a visitor with family or a visitor searching for a church home or whatever, my burden for the people of God, if I have just a minute, is to say, look for a place that's eating every bite. Look for a place that's eating the Word. And it's so easy to just jump around and eat the things that are easy to preach and easy to hear. And you end up malnourished. It's sort of like fast food theology. 
You just hit, man, it's easy. Man, I go to Wendy's, I got food like that. Or I could sit home and make some vegetables and a balanced meal. And who's going to be healthier? You know, it's fun eating at Wendy's. Man, <laughs> Sonic, I ate a sandwich. I had a bike race last Saturday. I ate a sandwich at Sonic that was that big after I was done. It was the best sandwich I ever had. But if I eat that every day, man, you're not healthy. You need vegetable sermons. And you know what you do with a vegetable sermon is you go back and listen to it again. You talk about it. You process it. Because you can miss it if you just sat there and you just endured it. Kids, y'all did a good job this morning. I know it's hard for kids to sit still. It's hard for me to sit still and pay attention. So y'all did a good job, and I appreciate y'all engaging. And those parents that have kids that were squirming or making noise, don't worry about it. Most of us have had kids, so we know they make noise. And they squirm, so it's all good. And those of you who haven't, you'll figure it out. If the Lord wills it, you'll find out. And if you're overwhelmed with pride right now, well, you will never let your kid do that. Yes, you will. <laughs> yes, you will. He will he, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. <laughs> That's right. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. Lord, we are so thankful for the time together that we've had around the table. It has been good nourishment. We have... Uh, are thankful for the Word. We're thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray that He will um, make this fine purchase. We will see the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll understand you better. We'll see the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and we will celebrate that and enjoy that. That our prayers will, will have more precision as we pray for the Holy Spirit to change hearts. We'll understand what that means as He brings us to a place and the world to a place of conviction over sin and righteousness and judgment. Lord, we are so thankful for our time together this morning. Also thankful for uh, an appeal that was made to you for a good conscience this morning through the work of, through the event of baptism. We're so blessed to be part of it, so blessed to be witnesses to it. We pray that this journey will continue for young Andrew and for the Money family and so blessed to, uh, to see out loud worship uh, by a father and a son together. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a good day.